We're going to continue to worship the Lord together with the reading of Scripture, so I'm going to invite you to stand, and uh, we're going to actually read from two different chapters, 1 John chapter 2, and then the Gospel of John uh, chapter 8, and uh, Lord willing, we'll see how these two passages have everything to do with one another. Thank you. 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. Whoever, so so you can put your name here, whoever, Brandon, says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So different book, but same author. That's the epistle of John now here in John chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide, just highlight that you've heard that word a couple of times now, right? If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you, who knows this passage, free. They answered him. We're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Same chapter. Look at verse 59, after Jesus speaks to them a little bit longer. They picked up stones to throw at him. They want to kill him, is what his Bible say. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's pray together. Father, my prayer now in humility is that what you want us to understand from these verses, when the Holy Spirit inspired this to be written, what we've just read, may that be the message that is proclaimed among us. Lord, you are our salvation. So, save from the raging sea those who are among us who need to hope in you. And those who are here who do hope in you, give us grace to be reminded right now how stable the ground is in which we stand in faith in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, John chapter 8, I'd love for you to keep that open in front of you. We're going we're gonna to walk through it to, together. Uh, I read an article this week that highlighted the fact that there are a number of really well-known companies whose names are regularly mis pronounced. So I'm going to put a few of them on the screen and see how you would say their name. So let's go with the first one. How do you say that? All right. I couldn't hear all that. I couldn't hear that at all. But how many of you say Hyundai? That's actually, that's actually right. And this isn't so much an issue in America, but I was reading it's kind of a big deal in England. In fact, they've started this whole marketing campaign in England, this company has, because everyone pronounced it with an I at the end. Hyun, Hyun, 
die. Now, the next one. What's the next one? How would you pronounce this one? Probably determines how into soccer you are, how you pronounce this. Adidas. How many of you say it that way? Can you receive some correction this morning from Adidas? It's named for the company's founder, and I do tend to think that if you found a company, you can kind of say how it should be pronounced, right? His name was Adi. Dassler, or Dossler, I don't know, I'm probably mispronouncing his name. A whole other series of issues. It's pronounced with emphasis on the first syllable. And how about this one? Nobody wants to say it out loud. You already prepped us, we're not going to say it right. Ikea. That's how you say it. It's not how I say it, but that's how it's supposed to be. Now, now, now it's one thing to mispronounce a word, right? It's a whole other thing to misunderstand a word or idea completely. And there's a word that Jesus uses in John 8 that you and I are told is found in the exact opposite way that Jesus says it's to be found. So the word that we're going to kind of focus on, in fact, for the next several Sundays, we're going to take a major New Testament word and say, here's what we believe in humility. God means when he uses this word, words like church, words like repentance, words like mission, words like evangelism, salvation. What do these words actually mean? Because not everybody who's using them is using them the way John does or the Bible does. So our word today is free, freedom. Now, uh, I've been reading a right good bit of uh, Tim Keller's books recently, and it's been really helpful to to kind of get uh, precise about some things. And he has, I'll give you a couple of his illustrations, but one, for example, is suppose this morning, I know we got some fishermen in the room, some really good fishermen in the room, and I had a fish, and I just plopped it right here on the stage, what would happen? Question, would that fish be free? What would, what would the fish do? Flip all around? Y'all probably freak out. I would too. I'd be like, I'd probably have to find somebody to come get it. But it would start uh, doing that fish out of water face. It's horrifying, isn't it? That's why I never got real into fishing. I could never stop looking at the fish as it pleads with me. What, uh, what, what's it doing? Now, if I picked up that fish and not, enough, and not too much time had gone by and put it back in the water, what would it be? It'd be free. Another way of saying it is it would be in uh, the element it's designed for, right? It would be in the environment that it can live and thrive. It would go from flopping all around and I place it back in the water to it would dart out and so on. And then I put the hook back and try to catch it again. No, no, but it would be, it would be free. Jesus says in John 8, 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth. When does he say you'll know the truth? When you abide in his word, right? We're just tracking along with the obvious things that Jesus said. And then, having known, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. So here's our emphasis this morning, the word and idea we're going to focus on, free. The culture that we live in teaches and defines this word and idea in the very opposite way that Jesus does. 
We're going to talk about that, think about that as we move uh, along. So, so let's, let's notice from the passage that Jesus is emphasizing freedom. I'm not making up this message. I'm getting it straight from the word. Verse 31, you'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. Or verse 32, and then, and then a little bit further on in verse 36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And it gets kind of emotional in this passage, doesn't it? I mean, we, we read down here in verse 59, but let's back up to verse 57. So the Jews said to him, you're not, you're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And it's at that moment, it says, they picked up stones to throw at him. And I just want to make sure we're tracking along together. You got John 8 there. That's why we want to keep the Bible open. In verse 30, As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, and this is the same group in verse 59 that picks up stones. So we're tracking together, right? They begin this whole conversation that they're sort of on team Jesus. And then he begins to teach in such a way that within a matter of moments, they go from saying, hey, we're kind of with you to we want to kill you. And what is it that he said and taught that resulted in that kind of reaction. In fact, y'all, they say some pretty nasty things to Jesus. Look, look at uh, verse 41. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. What are they saying? It's a pretty strong insult to Jesus, isn't it? And, and then in verse 48, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So what is the subject that gets them so fired up? It's the subject of freedom. He tells them they are not free and there's only one way to be free. And that fires them up to the point that it's not like they just wanted to walk away. They pick up stones to to throw at them. So here's how we'll do it. We'll walk through together. We'll talk about what freedom is not. Then, Then we'll see what the obstacle between you and freedom really is. And then, and then third, we'll see that Jesus is the only source of freedom. That's, that's where we'll go. So let's start with, first of all, what freedom is not. Hey, if we just took inventory together and uh, the messages that we constantly and consistently receive through the, today's, um, you know, music, movies, television, read any book that's published in the last 40 years, and the message of the culture is what? Freedom would be defined this way. The absence of any and all constraints upon what I want to do, my choices. Freedom is the ability for me to choose what I want to do without any limitations. That's how the culture defines freedom. But can that be how freedom really is found? Super Bowl Sunday. I've got a little something in my freezer at the house. Ben and Jerry's milk and cookies ice cream. Anybody with me? It's the best. So, so here, here in my mind, here's what I would like to do. Here's what I would like to choose. I would like to choose to eat the entire container of Ben and Jerry's ice cream every night at 9 p.m. Friends, uh, y'all, there have been some seasons in my life where I did just that. I did. But I also want to be healthy and live to see my children grow up. So now we got an issue, don't we? We got competing desires. And if I choose one, I can't have the other. So if you just take a breath and think, 
the message that we are receiving all the time, freedom is the absence of any and all constraints and limitations on our choices, can't possibly be what freedom is. There's no such thing as choices without consequences. So you could say that I'm free for my 9 p.m. milk and cookies extravaganza. But if I do that, I'm not going to be able to live a healthy life. So I'm going to have to choose one thing, which means I can't have the other. Does that make sense? I mean, I know it makes sense. We, we, we see very quickly this modern notion of freedom doesn't quite work in the, in the real world. Hey, here's the good thing about Jesus. He's up front about this. Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll tell you what makes you weary and heavy laden uh, conceptually is that's eating the ice cream every night and trying to be healthy. That'll leave you exhausted. He says, if you're weary and heavy laden, come to me. Take my yoke upon you. Is there anything more constraining than a yoke? I mean, that is a device that constrains. You know what a yoke is, right? You'd yoke up one ox to another. But then he says, if you'll do that, you'll find rest for your souls. So he's saying, if, if you submit to the right yoke, because here's, here's the truth. You're already yoked up to something. It's deception. It's a lie from the liar of all liars that freedom is, I'm not tied to anything. Yes, you are. It's just a matter of what you are submitted to. That's what Jesus just said. He says, in essence, you're either enslaved to sin or set free by Christ. There's not some third option there. That's the reality for each of our hearts. So in this generation where all the constraints of Jesus are mocked, thrown off, set aside, what is the testimony of report after report and survey after survey? It's off the charts that this is the most anxious depressed, and lonely generation ever on record. Why is that? Because you bought into a lie about freedom that can't possibly be so. It's a fish out of water. Now here's an important question. What's the equivalent of water to the soul? Jesus has told us what it is. Have you seen it yet? That's what, that's what we're going to build to. So, so Jesus, first of all, tells freedom's not found that way. And you see, they, they get kind of fired up about this. They said, uh, verse, uh, verse 33, they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you will say you will become free? So Jesus teaches us first, this is how freedom's not found. And, and then he's going to teach us what the true obstacle to our freedom is. This is interesting because we live in a generation that says the very obstacle to freedom is your freedom. So what do I mean by that? Well, uh, the overwhelming narrative that we're told, again, I'm not telling you to do this, but if you did and you went home tonight, and I don't care what streaming service you use, you turned it on and just picked the very first thing, I can, you already know what the narrative's going to be, isn't it? The, the, the narrative is the hero is going to go against some outside force that's constraining them so that they can be truly free. Give you an example. I got four girls, so I've seen Frozen. And you already know this song, most of you. It's what I'd call the false freedom anthem. Just listen to the words. You're going to start singing it in your mind. Let it go. Let it go. Let what go? Constraints. 
limitations. Can't hold it back anymore. I'm about to start singing it. Let it go, let it go. Turn away and slam the door. I don't care what, anybody know the song? They're going to say. What's she saying? Nobody can tell me what to do. I'm going to go build my ice castle. Which strangely leaves her isolated and alone. And isn't this interesting? Someone who lovingly sacrifices for her is going to end up helping her. It's like even when you try to get away from the truth, you keep coming back to it. But let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me anyway. But, but just hang with me. And I'm kind of teasing, but it's kind of serious at the same time, isn't it? It's funny, she goes on to sing, how some distance makes everything seem small, and the fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all. That's interesting because Jesus just said, sin controls you. Elsa is saying, it's not going to control me anymore. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. Who knows what she says next? I'm free. Elsa's big problem, we're told, is the disapproval of her parents, the expectations of a society that looks unfavorably upon her icy powers, right? And that's the message that we're told over and over and over and over. Now, now I'm not in any way suggesting that there aren't evil forces in the world, oppressors in the world, but Jesus teaches us right here that the true enemy of your freedom is not out there, it's actually in here. Verse 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave. In other words, is not free because of sin. And they do not like that message at all. Do you know what they really want? They want Mr. Messiah to show up and throw off the Romans. And we've talked about this before. But they really want his political freedom. Kind of an interesting thing for the, the response to be, we've never been enslaved to anyone. Have you, have you read the Old Testament? <laughs> enslaved in Egypt. Never quite able to overcome the Philistines. In exile in Babylon. And here they want a Messiah. What they really want is someone to go drive out the Romans. And Jesus does some things consistently in his ministry that demonstrate he could be the very Messiah they want. Now, if you know anything about military history... And today's a reminder of that. You can control a lot of things, but you can't control the weather. I mean, you can have the most strategically brilliant military strategy, and history is full of this. But man, if the weather doesn't cooperate, that's bad news. It starts raining. I mean, what's Jesus demonstrated? He can speak. Everything's calm. Or, or, in fact, John 6, just a couple of chapters ago, do you know what the number one problem of raising a large army in that time was, how are we going to feed all these people, right? I mean, yeah, you can raise up thousands of troops, but when you go on the march, they're going to get to the first night, and they're going to be hungry. How are we going to handle that? And what has Jesus demonstrated? Give me a couple of fish, a couple of loaves. We got it. That's why, by the way, if you go read that account, on that sign, they sought to make him king by force. Or then, somebody gets hurt. Somebody gets paralyzed. Their neck gets broken. Jesus has demonstrated, I don't even have to be there, right? With the Roman centurion, ironically enough, he heals. And then worst case scenario, somebody dies. What does Jesus demonstrate? Raise him back up. 
I do have to tell you, by the way, in humility, that desire for a political Messiah is not just relegated to that generation. It's an impulse that goes strong in us right now. Because there is a slavery that's on the inside due to sin. And what the trajectory of the Gospels is, when Jesus consistently, and then it's just real clear that he's not the political Messiah they had hoped for, that's when they all turn on him and say, it doesn't matter if we're a Pharisee, a Sadducee, an Essene, a Zealot, we're all united in this. That guy has got to go. And they crucify him. The Romans and the high priest collaborate. This is a picture, a foreshadowing of this. When it becomes clear, this is what Jesus is really saying. They pick up stones to throw at him. So, what's the real enemy of freedom? According to Jesus, it's sin. It's another one of these words that, what does that actually mean? Uh, So, let's just talk about that for, for a moment. If you commit sin, you are enslaved to sin. So, what is sin? Let's try to be as simple as we can about this. Sin is our disobedience against the Creator. Disobedience against the Creator, and then you're enslaved to that disposition to be disobedient to your Creator. Does that make sense? Like you do it, and then it entraps you into continually doing that. So this is real easy for you to see uh, in your own life. Isn't there something, man, and it goes way down deep inside of you that says, nobody can tell me what to do. Do you have that? You wouldn't answer it, because it's just me telling you to ask, ask, right? But don't you have that? What is that? It's a deep-rooted resistance to any authority outside of yourself, and especially and ultimately to God. There's something in us that says, nobody's going to tell me what to do, and nobody's going to tell me what to choose. And as as soon as somebody, a parent, a teacher, a spouse, the church, God himself in his word tells you, and you don't want to do it, you say, I'm done with this. In fact, I think about this kind of a lot. There's a verb in our culture that probably has the most negative connotation of any verb in the culture. And you know what it is? Preach. We say it when we use it. It's always negative. Sometimes you'll hear somebody say, don't you be preaching at me. Or we'll say it almost apologetically. Now, I don't want you to think I'm preaching. What am I doing right now? I'm preaching. What does that mean? taking the authority of God's word and applying it to our lives. And, that, and, and as I do that, that's what Jesus is doing. And what's the response? We're taking him out. Because that's what sin is. Nobody tells me what to do. Sin is the inward condition that responds so strongly when someone outside of me tells me what to do. Quoting Tim Keller again, he gives the example that God's given us the Ten Commandments, the golden rule, and says, if God is our creator, that's not just busy work, right? So here's how it works for us. God reveals that the Bible, or God reveals in the Bible that that we do have a creator. Amen? You're just not an accident. But, But creator means that you have a purpose. He designed you for something, to do something. You have a mission in the world. Now, this is real simple. If you reject that, what are you left with? What is life? It's whatever you choose to make of it. And isn't that the message you hear again and again and again and again? But friends, if we have a creator, it's not for us to decide, here's what I want life to be. 
He, he used the illustration of a, of a car manual. We, we probably heard similar illustrations. Did you know there's no freedom without constraints in driving a car? Have you noticed that? Uh, at least I hope not. I mean, if you, if you just say, I'm going to fly around and skip over the curb and go 80 and the 20 and so on, you're going to have problems really fast. In fact, you got to, you got to change the oil at certain intervals. Have you ever gone to buy a car and they say, hey, man, every 5,000 miles you need to change it. And you say, you're so narrow-minded. No, you don't say that. Why? Because you know the car has a design and it has a purpose. You can go without changing the oil if you want to, but the car's not going to last very long. The car will kind of die if you do that. And cars are not designed to be driven by five-year-olds. People get hurt. It's against the design of the car. So when God says, this is what I command you, you'll do well in life if you don't receive that as, who is he to tell me what to do? He's your creator. He's merciful. He's gracious. He loves you. So, so when you go against those commands, just take the Ten Commandments. Have no other gods. Even the atheist has a god. In the, in the sense that your heart is oriented around some ultimate thing. Don't lie. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Don't dishonor your parents. Don't lie. Don't commit adultery. Don't covet. When you do those things, it's not just breaking a rule. It's the equivalent of taking dirt and putting in the gasoline engine, right? Or, or, or where the gasoline goes. It's not just breaking a rule. You're destroying yourself. So we're told, throw off all his commands and constraints, and that's freedom. The Bible says that's actually the complete loss of freedom. Because sin is the resistance and rejection of God, and it brings a condition called self-centeredness. That is the condition of the sinful heart. Me, first, last, and always. And that's why Elsa's notion of freedom is so popular today. Kind of appealing to want to choose what I want to do and no one limit me in any way. But the irony, if you have the grace to receive what God is saying, is you're actually limiting yourself when you live that way. Do you see that with Adam and Eve in the garden? In the name of freedom, they reject God's word and plunge themselves and their offspring and you and me into sin and self-centeredness. And the most devastating consequence was the loss of the most precious and freeing thing there is. What is that? That's the water. And you know what it is? Man, this is going to sound so basic, but I want you to just hang with me. What is the equivalent of water to your soul as it is to the fish, right? Without it, you flop around and gasp. And, <gasps> what is it? It's love. It's specifically the love of God. Abide in my word. Then you'll be my disciples. You, you, by God's grace, will hear that as a call to freedom, not to limitation. Isn't that when you feel the most alive and free? It's like the water, right? Jesus comes as a liberator. So, third point. Number one, we saw what freedom's not. It's not the absence of any constraints on my choices. Number two, the obstacle to your freedom is not out there. There's some bad things out there, but the obstacle to you really living, like having an abundant life, is not out there. It's in here. It's the sinful rejection of God. And then our third and hopefully most important point is real freedom comes in 
and through Jesus. Jesus has shown up as a, as a liberator. And they pick up stones to throw him, but isn't this good news? He doesn't pick them up back. Isn't that good? They pick, I mean, that's how we usually respond. Somebody's going to throw a stone at me. Hey, I got one in both hands. We're ready. Let's go. That's not how Jesus is. It's not his character. They're ultimately going to kill him. They're just not going to do it now. So he just hit himself. That's, that's interesting. Jesus just hit himself. That must mean that the only way they'll ever take his life is if he lays it down of his own accord, which is what he says he will do. But he takes his life from him. So, so now, uh, let's think of what Jesus says here. Uh, verse 34. Jesus said, answer them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Real quick, one more illustration. Have you ever um, have you ever seen Downton Abbey? Anybody seen that? Super popular, you know, ten years ago. My kids got into it at some point. My daughters, when they're little teenagers, and we, so let's just use that as an example. If you don't have you ever seen the show, it's hundred some odd years ago in England, and there's the Lord of the House. His name is uh, Lord Grantham, and then he's got three children. At least when the show begins. Maybe I shouldn't say that if you never saw it. But anyway. So he's got three daughters. And then, because this back in 100 years plus ago, he's got a whole lot of servants who live in the house. And he's a, I mean, he's a pretty nice man. But his relationship with his daughters and his relationship with the servants are not the same. And I'm just telling you that because it's what Jesus is saying. You, you by his grace become a child so let's just think through it because this gets where where he has got the contention with the sons of abraham the, the descendants of abraham so if you're a servant you, you might live in the house and have a pretty good relationship with the lord of the house but you don't have a permanent relationship with him why it's based on good works and as long as you are up to standards and you do a good job and you obey the rules, you can live there and get paid. But if you disobey the rules, you're out. So the relationship's all on the basis of works. But the children, it's permanent love. If a servant disobeys, out. If a child disobeys, not out. So Jesus is saying, Don't live like a servant. Don't try to earn my favor. Guess you can't. It's not freedom. God's not desiring to be your boss. He's desiring to be your father. Now here's, here's, what, here's what goes on in your heart. If you're saying, I, I'm not trying to live an anti-God life. I want to follow the Lord, but you're doing it as a rule keeper. Here's how you know. You, you start, uh, well, you're going to either be really anxious or really angry. Those are your options if you try to live that kind of way. Like, I'm, I'm going to go to church. I'm going to do this. You're going to be competitive with other people. You're going to need to denounce other people in order to feel better about yourself and then be more self-righteous. You, you'll get so angry that you'll pick up some stones and throw at some people. That's, that's what we see here. The, the, the only way 
we see sin destroyed in our lives is when we begin to see that God's not our boss, he's a father, and we come to him as children. And the only one who can make you a child and not a servant is Jesus. So here's where we're going to conclude. How does he do that? Verse 57. Hang with me. Two more minutes. So important. This will set you free. Amen. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. It's when he says, I am, they picked up stones to throw at him. Why? Because Jesus just did something serious. He just used God's name to make his point. He doesn't say, before Abraham was, I was. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And this is consistent throughout the Gospel of John. Many times Jesus does this, and they knew what he was saying. They're saying, I was at the burning bush. When Moses was interacting with God, he was interacting with me because I am God. And to them, that was blasphemous. The only way that we can go from being enslaved to sin to being a child at home with the Lord is that Jesus goes to the cross to set us free. The only way we can ever be free, according to Jesus, is we have to be set free from sin. Jesus, who's the only truly free person who's ever been born into the world after the fall, he kind of can do whatever he wants. He's really free. And what does he do? He goes to the cross and lays down his life. Can you this morning recognize that Jesus lays down his life for you because he loves you? That's the water for your soul, friends. You don't go find it anywhere else. He wants you to be free. The oldest lie in the world is that God wants to restrict you. He doesn't. He wants you to be free. So Jesus goes from all-powerful freedom to being nailed on a cross so that you can be free. So he does make a claim here that freedom is found in the opposite way the culture around us proclaims freedom. Freedom is not found in throwing off all the constraints. It's found in the way of Jesus. This is how we know that we are his disciples, right? Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So, conclusion, got competing desires. Ben and Jerry's to live a long time, have a healthy life. Can't do both. What's real freedom? Real freedom is when you have competing desires and you consistently, regularly choose the desire rooted in love, not selfishness. That's what it means to really be free. Now, you're not going to do that perfectly, going to go give you that caveat but if you belong to Jesus you're going to do what he does and that's what he does competing desires come up you got that old flesh if you're if you're a follower of Jesus you got that old nature selfishness is still in there but now you're getting a nature that's being renewed and day in day out every choice you face what's freedom freedom is found in abiding in his word and trusting in his love 
Adidas, not Adidas, right? How do you pronounce freedom? Abiding according to Jesus in his word. I'm just going to ask you to stand and we'll pray together. They don't have a time to respond. With your head bowed, uh, maybe this would be super helpful um, for you to see. In John chapter 8, In John chapter 8, the audience that Jesus is speaking to is the audience that knew their Bibles really well. They knew knew them really well. They know about Abraham. They know about Moses. They know about David. They know about Esther. They know about Ruth. And it's that group of people that picked up stones to throw at Jesus. So for our invitation, I, I just want you to see, time of response, That you can, it is possible, to be very familiar with the story, the teaching of the Bible, and completely miss the message of the gospel. That's happening in your life if you're consistently, if you're consistently being ruled by anxiety or anger. The disciple of Jesus is ruled by Jesus, yoked to Jesus, walking in the way of Jesus. He really can, he really can make you a part of God's family. Have you ever submitted to his yoke? I'm going to pray together if you've got a burden, a concern, you'd love to have someone pray for you, it would be my joy to do that. Or this morning, maybe you see in your own life that you're a lot like the people in John 8. You know things, you can quote the Bible, but you've never, ever actually been free in the forgiveness that comes through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So Father, I pray now that you would do what only you can do, and that is to take the word that we've studied and bring it to bear in our lives. You've said that there's a comforter, the Holy Spirit, who will come and convict of sin, righteousness, and the coming judgment. God, may that be so right now. We ask that we are not hearers of the word only unto deceiving ourselves, but you speak truth to us. We are lied to over and over and over in the world. Thank you for Jesus who stepped into the world to proclaim truth and to free us. We look to him together in Jesus' name. Amen.